Let's take a moment. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Acts chapter 8. And we're going to continue in our series through the book of Acts, um, looking at Acts 8, 1 through 25. If you don't own a Bible, there should be this red one around you. Feel free to use that as your own this morning. Um, We're going to be reading through verses 1 through 25. So hear these, hear these words. This is on page 973 if you're using the red one. Saul agreed with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men and buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed to speak to us. And then I'll pray and we'll get into this text. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now. Thank you that you are a good father who longs to teach, to encourage, to, um, to lead your children. God, we just ask that you would show us what it looks like to be a church that flourishes in the midst of um, diminishing reputation and momentum and strength and vitality. God, a church that is scattered is not a church that has to fall apart. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us what it looks like to be gathered together internally, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, even in the midst of being scattered physically. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do um, when life scatters you? I don't think I need a better illustration than the last two years, right? So we've all experienced this physical scattering, but also kind of a mental and emotional Scattering, And when we're scattered, when, when life begins to kind of fall apart, when, when things don't kind of unfold the way that we hope, the way that we plan, the way that we strategize, something that doesn't fall into our five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan, what do you reach for? We all instinctively, when we fall, like if you, if you just kind of fall and you fall back, I don't know if you ever did those stupid trust falls, I hated that stuff like in church when you were a kid, 
and you're like, fall back. And you're like, you instinctively, like if you, if you have a child and like a baby, um, it, it, like you can kind of, you know, like mess around with them a little bit. You can kind of play with them, you know, and you let them like fall. And they, they instinctively reach, they reach out. There's, a, there's an instinct that we have to reach out for something. Um, I don't recommend that with like a newborn. I'm just saying as they get like a little bit bigger, you can kind of mess with them a little bit. Um, it's a startle reflex, right? We have a startle reflex when we fall. And, and I find that in our lives too, when, when things begin to fall apart, we have startle reflexes. We, we reach for something to make sense of life. We reach for things to gain a sense of control when things feel out of control. What do you reach for when things fall apart? What do you reach for to sustain yourself? What do you reach for to regain a sense of identity, place, community, meaning, purpose, when you feel that your life is being scattered to the winds. That's the situation that the, the church finds themselves in. And this is really kind of a, a pivot point here in the book of Acts. So if you're, if you're uh, new or maybe you've missed a couple of weeks, we, we, we see here uh, kind of a hinge in the book of Acts, a shift that's gonna mark this, uh, the, the rest of the book, starting in uh, chapter six, verse eight, and then, and then moving through really the rest of the book, and particularly we'll pick up momentum as we get to the end of the book, there's this shift from a church that's experiencing momentum and kind of a gathering sense of strength to now a church that is going to be scattered and is going to experience diminishment, not just physically, but in, in all kinds of different ways. So chapters one through chapter six, verse seven. Chapter six, um, verse seven ends by saying this. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Um, it says, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, we love, we love this part of Acts. We love when the church is gathering momentum, when the church is on the move, when the church is growing in numbers and health. It's awesome. And that kind of prosperity, we long for that, right? We, we want to see that kind of revival and renewal happen. But oftentimes, we don't know how to make sense of what then happens at the stoning of Stephen, and then afterwards, chapter eight starts us in a different kind of emotional frame. And I want us to not run past this, because it's important that we see this as a normal part of kind of our spirituality. We see this as a normal thing in the church. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now just... Stop. Everything shifts in this moment. We, we go from momentum to diminishment, from, from gathering to scattering. Saul, who we're gonna see later on becomes Paul, one of the highest ranking Pharisees, and at this point, not a follower of Jesus, becomes essentially uh, the lead terrorist against the Christian movement. He becomes a, a, a persecutor, a zealous persecutor, he launches one of the most highly organized, meticulously executed campaigns of religious violence and terrorism against the church in Jerusalem. He begins to go and identify and target Christians, followers of Jesus, followers of the way, literally going and, and dragging them. He has legal authority to drag them out of their homes, their churches, their families, their businesses, to imprison them on trumped up charges and then we'll, we'll learn later, actually, to execute them as well. So you can imagine the intensity of this moment. 
and how much of a shift, like emotionally, this must have been spiritually, this must have been for a church that knew nothing but basically momentum. Now they enter into an emotional frame of mourning. So joy has turned to mourning. Favor has turned to hostility, gathering to scattering. And there's this massive kind of outbound migration as these religious and political refugees are fleeing for their lives from Jerusalem, and they move out of Jerusalem. They move out into the surrounding areas, to the Mediterranean basin, to uh, the Asian and African provinces of Rome. They literally are scattered outside of the empire. And it's interesting, this word that's used here for scattering, it's an important word uh, in the Jewish psyche and in their kind of religious history. This word is the word diaspora. They're, They're literally diasporaed out side of Jerusalem. It was a loaded word, and it was a word that had a long and tragic history for the Jewish people. Um, At this time, even uh, about 80% of Jews lived outside of Jerusalem, outside of Palestine. And if you go back in the history, go all the way back to the Old Testament, this this idea of diaspora, we see that that scattering happens uh, through military conquest. It happens through exile and uh, idolatry and injustice. There's actually, after that, after the Old Testament, kind of in the period in between, the intertestamental period, we also see that Jews were enslaved. They were captured and taken away from their homeland. They were relocated to Roman cities across the Roman Empire. And so what's happening here in chapter 8 is really kind of a, a new episode of something that's happened for a long time to the Jewish people. Now the church is going to experience this ancient pattern of diaspora. And I, and I just don't want us to run past this because it's an important part of what's preparing them for what happens later in this chapter. Diaspora is, is an important thing for us to pay attention to. For many of us, it's hard for us to imagine this level of frustration, this level of loss. Willie Jennings, in his commentary on this passage, uh, says this about diaspora. He says, diaspora, it's a little bit long, so just kind of hang in. Diaspora means scattering and fragmentation, exile and loss. It means being displaced and in search of a place that could be made home. For Israel, it means life among the Gentiles. Danger and threat surround diaspora life. Diaspora life is life crowded with self-questioning, questions for God concerning the anger, the hatred, and the violence visited upon a people. We must never confuse voluntary migration with diaspora. Because diaspora is a geographic and social world not chosen and a psychic state inescapable. The peoples who inhabit diaspora live with animus and violence, filling the air they breathe. They live always on the verge of being classified enemy, always an evaluation of their productivity to the empire, always having an acceptance on loan, ready to be taken away at the first sign of sedition. They live with fear as an ever-present partner in their lives, the fear of being turned into a them, a dangerous other, those people among us. They also remember loss of land and place, of life and hope, and even for some, of faith. The closest thing that we have to an experience of diaspora in America are our African-American brothers and sisters, and, and probably refugees who are fleeing political violence. Know what it's like to experience that kind of loss. And I just want us to pause and pay attention to this. And I want to speak to your heart. I mean, just imagine, like we could just sprint through verses one through three and just get to the revival in verses uh, four through eight 
And we could just, it'd be easy for us to just move towards the triumphalism without, while missing the trauma of what these people have lived. The trauma that makes these kind of moves almost impossible. I mean, what happens in verse four is almost psychologically and spiritually impossible. It's definitely not natural. I mean, just consider the trauma-induced vulnerabilities that these people lived, the wounds that had to be attended to that are real human wounds. This is the kind of heart posture, the kind of tenderizing of our inner life that has to happen if we're going to see what happens later on in the chapter. I mean, think about this. Philip, one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter six, the original kind of template for deacon, his teammate, his partner, Stephen, the man that he ran with. And think about your co-leader in your missional community. Think about your partner in discipleship. Think about your business partner, somebody that you're running with and doing life with at a deep level, has just been murdered, stoned to death with all the grief. I mean, just imagine like gathering in a place like this with a kind of fear that always hovers around you of a friend, a loved one, a family member being systematically and brutally hunted and imprisoned and murdered at any time somebody could break into your home and literally arrest them and take them away and you never see them again. Having to flee the city that you've lived most of your life under the cover of night, separated from your home, separated from your children, separated from the apostles, kind of your covering of leadership, the city you grew up in, the temple where you gathered for worship, everything that's familiar to you, all of a sudden it's gone. What sustains you when you experience that kind of scattering? Like, like we may not experience anything on that level of intensity living in the modern West, living in America, but a scattering of any kind is still ravaging, right? That's the language here, ravaging. It's ravaging, it's painful psychologically, it's painful spiritually, emotionally, physically. Like the early disciples, I think that we can all relate to the feeling of being scattered, right? Like we are experiencing all kinds of, like multiple layers of scattering right now as a church and as disciples of Jesus. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, we are experiencing this collective scattering, Right, like there's the scattering. I just want to list some things that came to mind this week. There's the scattering for the church as an institution, as it was in Jerusalem. There's the scattering of the church's what I'll just call like cultural power and influence. Right, like we may not be experiencing the kind of persecution for sure that they were experiencing here in the Book of Acts. Nothing on this register that we will probably experience in our lifetimes in in America. Right, but like like they're experiencing in China or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, like true persecution, true, intense persecution like this. But we are experiencing a sort of cultural diminishment. As a church, we are experiencing a sort of marginalization, a sort of assumed negative public perception, right, concerning things that would have been historically normative and orthodox for Christianity in terms of our beliefs and our practices. Like every study that's coming out is saying that non-Christian secular people now look at the church and they say, not only is it weird, not only is it Uh, bothersome, it's actually dangerous. Christians are dangerous and immoral people. That's the public perception that we're swimming in now as the church, and that's leading to all kinds of consequences that we experience in our workplaces, we experience in our neighborhoods, we experience as we move out into the world, the church is viewed as dangerous in places, urban centers like Indianapolis. There's a chart that 
Uh, I want to show you guys that came out recently in uh, Christianity Today. It was an article uh, kind of discussing the, um, the, the effects, the impact of Billy Graham uh, in, in kind of looking at uh, religious uh, growth and decline since the 1970s. So far left is the 1970s, uh, far right. Now, just look at that for a second. It's a really staggering chart to begin to see since the 1970s when some of your parents maybe experienced the, the heyday of the church in terms of its uh, certain segments of the church, in terms of its power and influence and favorability. I mean, what do you notice about this chart? Like, there's two things that just immediately stand out. Like, the free fall of mainline and evangelical Protestant Christianity in terms of, uh, this is kind of religious attendance and how people identify with the church. Staggering to watch that from the 1970s. And then look at the, the rise of those who have no religion, skyrocketing up those who claim no religion, what we call the nuns, right? And this is not just young people. This is actually older people as well, people who've left the church, boomers that are leaving the church, your parents who all of a sudden have stopped attending churches. So we're experiencing kind of a scattering of the power and the influence that maybe in different times the church had, and we can argue whether that's good or bad, but it's still a a scattering. There's the scattering of just the the stability of the church, the the growth and the momentum of the church, right? Like the latest research out tells us that churches in the past two years since COVID started have lost between 30 and 50%, sometimes up to 70, 80% of just attenders, people coming to the church. People are scattered. And all of a sudden, the churches are experiencing massive instability. And then I think for all of us, just on an individual level, we experience just the scattering of our lives. We've experienced the scattering of our lives, like, emotionally. Uh, I was listening to my daughter every um, uh, semester. At the end of the semester, my daughter, all of my kids go to a school where they, they really value reflection. And so they take time to just uh, write down reflections on the previous semester, and then they share those reflections. And it was interesting to me to listen to a sixth grader and to listen to a bunch of sixth graders sharing the level of anxiety that they live with, the, the, the mental health challenges that our kids are walking in during COVID is incredible. I mean, kids are honest about it. We just like to hide it, right, as adults. But like kids actually are very dialed in and probably more emotionally attuned than we are to our own trauma emotionally just to listen to these kids talk about the anxiety that they're experiencing, the uncertainty, the loss that they've experienced. It's heartbreaking. And we've all experienced that in different kinds of ways. I mean, depression is up. Violence is up. I mean, we're experiencing just massive emotional scattering, vocational scatterings, right? People are changing jobs. Um, A large uh, portion of you are doing remote work, which is just weird. Like, there's a scattering of how you show up at work and how you relate. Financial scattering, relational scattering, right? Like, how many of us have lost family members during COVID? How many of us have uh, experienced family breakup and division as kind of the political uh, climate has heated up and we're about to enter right back into that in 2022, which just sounds terrible, right? Like, and we're, we're experiencing just separation and loss in our lives, feel scattered. What do we do? How do, we, how do you see that? What do you reach for? What's your, what's your startle reflex when that kind of scattering begins to descend on your life? What I, wanna, what I want us to see here in, this, in the early Christians, in the church here, is that scattering, the way that they kind of looked at this, the way that God worked in them is that scattering was not a threat to their existence. Scattering was actually a catalyst and a crucible for transformation and renewal. 
those scattering moments, those diaspora moments, although we would never wish them on ourselves, and I'm not saying that I wish them for us, but it's, it's where we're at, it's what we experience. This is a normal rhythm in the life of the church, whether it's persecution or marginalization and exclusion, a global pandemic, political division, what we're experiencing is normal, right? It's, it's the norm in the church, and life's scattering moments are painful, but they can also be portals that lead to renewal and revival, they can lead us to new seasons of growth and maturity and fruitfulness. We can be physically scattered without spiritually falling apart. We can be scattered without falling apart if we're able to, like them, frame it within the context of God's loving providence. I mean, I love, like, the Spirit is like a jazz artist here in the book of Acts. The Spirit of God is doing improv here, right? Taking something painful and tragic and weaving it into a tapestry and converting pain and trauma into the progress of the mission of God and the kingdom of God and the gospel, right? And it doesn't mean we minimize that pain, right? There's a time to mourn. We see the church mourning here. We don't say it's not hard and, and just kind of close our eyes or click our heels in some kind of a, you know, Wizard of Oz kind of like, you know, um, positivism and optimism and, you know, isn't God amazing? They're still mourning. But my point is that we don't have to fall apart, right? Like, what God is doing here is fulfilling Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when they were all gathered together in Jerusalem, Jesus said to them before he left, you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We come to chapter 8, six, seven years later, and where are they? They're still hanging out in Jerusalem, Right, like we love, we, we gravitate towards comfort and momentum. We don't like to be diminished. We don't like when things are hard. Jesus scattered them in verse one, chapter one, and now the Spirit is scattering them for real in chapter eight. They settle down instead of moving out, and that's sometimes what God allows to happen in our lives. It's adversity, not prosperity, that's usually the catalyst for the growth of the church in both depth. And width. Bernardo Clairvaux said, the rarest thing in the world to see is a man or woman humbled under prosperity. There are gifts that are hidden in the midst of our scattering if we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open to what God is doing. I mean, some of the gifts that we see in this scattering, there's the decentralization of leadership, Right? There's a shift from kind of the apostles doing all the work, what I would call a top-down service provider model of church, right, where the officials, the professionals, the experts kind of are the ministry providers, and you guys are the ministry consumers, and our job is to provide ministry. I mean, people would bring their friends to hear the preaching and the miraculous things, to see the miraculous things the apostles were doing. Now, everybody's scattered out. Now the decisions are being made by ordinary people who are living out this organic mission of God. They're the ones now making the decisions to go to Samaria, to go to these places. They're not relying on the apostles and the momentum of the centralized machinery of an, a kind of an industrialized Christianity. But now, they are going out following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's what every movement of God does. And then secondly, we see the multiplication of mission, 
right? We see renewal happen. We see revival happen. We see joy breaking out in cities outside of the center of power, particularly, I would say, in times of scattering. We see God begin to move from centers of power out to marginalized communities, out to areas that need the gospel in places that we would not be inclined to go because of our biases and our patterns of socialization. We stay away from these places, and in times of scattering, God says, I want you to pay attention to these folks on the margin. And they begin to go out and multiply the mission of God. And that's the pattern, right? Like that is the gospel pattern, right? That is the kingdom pattern. Without scattering, without death, there can be no resurrection and no life. Without a mourning, there can be no joy. Without a scattering, there's no Samaria. There's no revival in Samaria. And I would say that is always the case, renewal and revival. See, when we get to these low ebbs, when we get to these places where we are feeling diminished, we are feeling our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities as a church, we tend to assume that and we freak out and we're like, the world's falling apart, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. No, right, renewal and revival always come at low ebbs of decline in church and culture. There's a man named James Burns who actually studied this. He studied revivals, he studied renewals, and he compares it to ocean tides, he said, the, we, you can see this chart. The, he says, if you look at the ocean, the tide goes out and the tide comes in, right? And when the tide goes out, we tend to freak out and assume that everything's terrible and that the world is falling apart. But he says, what's happening underneath the surface when the tide goes out is it's actually gathering power and strength and momentum to come back in and go even further than it went before. And that's what we see in the history of the church. When the, when the, when the night is darkest, the dawn is almost here. We see God begin to move and to work, right? Because when we feel our weakness, when we feel our vulnerability, there's a sense of desperation. There's a sense of longing that's not there when we're complacent and safe and secure and comfortable. That's so what we see in the book of Jeremiah, in their scattering, Jeremiah 29. They're sent into exile for their disobedience, for their idolatry, for their injustice. And what happens when they get to Babylon is they are afraid. And there are prophets surrounding the people of God saying, don't worry about it. God's gonna rescue you. There's the prosperity preachers, right? Like, God's gonna rescue you. Just hang in there a couple years. This will be over. And God says, through Jeremiah, actually, no. It's gonna be 70 years. You're gonna live an entire generation before you're gonna see the hand of God bring you out of exile. But he says, don't worry. He says, seek the peace of the city. Don't freak out. Don't assimilate to Babylonian culture. Don't withdraw from Babylonian culture. What does he say? Plant yourselves right here in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of a foreign pagan city with all kinds of pagan values. Seek the peace of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. And as you seek its peace and prosperity, you will find your own prosperity. That's what Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 says. It's amazing. And so the invitation here for us as we experience scattering is to not get stuck in our grief, to not get stuck in the confusion, but rather to find meaning in the midst of our scattering. To find meaning in the midst of our scattering. That is the key to being able to get to verse four, is to find meaning. That's what the, the disciples were able to do. Those who were scattered went on their way, and as they went, not knowing what was in front of them, not knowing what was gonna happen, they went on their way, it says, preaching the word. The word there is literally evangelizing. It's not like, don't think like street corners and people with you know, uh, signs. Evangelizing, gossiping the gospel, socializing, sharing the good news 
about Jesus. They, they go down and just these normal, ordinary people are proclaiming the good news about Jesus. They're finding meaning in the midst of their scattering. When facing diminishment, even death, their instinct is to reach out for the spiritual resources of God himself and to find meaning and purpose and power in the midst of opposition and hostility. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychologist, psychiatrist, and he, as many of you know, if you've read The Man, A Man's Search for Meaning, I just read it, my kids uh, were reading it, and I read it with them, I read it after them, and uh, as you know, uh, Frankl, it's a great book, if you haven't read it, it's amazing, he survived four different Nazi death camps in the 1940s, and as he observed and kind of studied and reflected on what made the difference between those who were able to survive outside of just sheer like luck and, 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 and you know, circumstances, but those who were all things equal, those who were able to survive these death camps. He says the key difference between those that survived and those that did not was that those who survived were able to maintain what he calls their inner spiritual freedom and how they responded to their suffering by finding meaning in the midst of their suffering in order to move forward with a renewed purpose in their lives. It was the finding of meaning, not meaning in suffering itself, but finding meaning in their suffering while they were suffering. And he went on to actually found an entire field of psychology called logotherapy, which is just meaning therapy. And his basic premise was, if you can help people who are trauma survivors find meaning in life, they can, be, they can experience levels of healing. And that's what I would submit to you was happening here. We see a group of people find meaning in the midst of of suffering, and they're able to move forward into these new seasons that God is calling them into. And so that's the question I just want to put before you, and we'll begin to wrap up here. What, where could God be giving you new opportunities in this moment to embody the power in the presence of Jesus, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your scattering, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of whatever traumas you might be walking through in this moment, as you're being scattered, maybe physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, vocationally, as we are being scattered in different ways as a church, what new opportunities might God be calling us to see? What new meanings might God be calling us to embrace? So that we, like the disciples, as we're scattered on our ways, can make much of the good news that Jesus is still Messiah. He's still king of the world. He's not forgotten about us. He's not absent from us. He's here with us. And he longs to bring about the kind of thing that we see happen in verse eight. There was great joy in the city, right? Like our city now more than ever needs great joy. This is mega joy is literally the word here. They experience mega joy. This is a revival that breaks out as God begins to prepare them for this and they find meaning in the midst of their scattering, we see them going out and committing themselves to doing the basic things that Christians have always done as they live on mission. There's evangelism, right? They're, they're good newsing. They're, they're socializing the gospel through intentional conversations with friends and neighbors to, to the degree that as Christians are scattered in the rest of the book of Acts and into church history as we go into the first couple of centuries, when the apostles and the bishops and the official um, leadership of the church go into new cities to preach the gospel, they actually find that there's already gospel movements happening well before they ever get there because people are going and sharing the good news that Jesus is Messiah. They're sharing the gospel both in word and then what gives credibility to their word uh, gospeling is their deeds, 
right? We see evangelism, we also see healing ministry, right? We see them casting out demons. We see physical and spiritual healing, right? Because sin is not just um, a spiritual reality. It's not just us making individual moral choices. It's demonic, right? Like when you think about sin, it's individual, it's structural, it's systemic, it's spiritual, it's demonic, like all of these things. It's, it's embedded in our you know, systems and structures and institutions. And they go out and they begin to fight all of those things in the power of the gospel, and it gives credibility to the truthfulness and to the power of the good news of Jesus. There's evangelism in word. There's healing and evangelism indeed. There's racial reconciliation happening here. I mean, you know the long history of the Jews and the Samaritans. They don't get along. There's racial and ethnic animus between these groups. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and we see Jews and Samaritans, different ethnic groups begin to come together. Again, another proof that the power of God is at work when the gospel breaks down these social and cultural barriers. And so I just want us to to think about that and to think about the possibilities before us today in our own moment, right? Like, there's two responses. When the gospel goes out through these people, there's two responses and I think two invitations for us. One is, what would it look like for us to experience in our scattering the kind of spiritual vitality for us to reach for the spiritual resources available to us in Jesus, to receive his power, to receive his presence in our lives in such a way that we move out with intentionality, with a sense of meaning and purpose as we're scattered, as we go out into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces. We experience the joy that we then can share with other people. Proverbs 11.10 says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Oftentimes, it's the inverse with the church. When the church is powerful, the city doesn't rejoice. The city languishes. What would it look like for us to experience such a joy in our faith, such a joy in our trust in Jesus, and such a joy in living out the mission of God that the entire city would rejoice, that we see opportunities where others see threats? We see an opportunity. Like the old story about the parable of the two salesmen that went to India, uh, and they went to um, start shoe business, and they get to India, and uh, nobody wears shoes, and one of them telegrams home says, get me a plane ticket, Uh, nobody here wears shoes, I need to go home. The other guy writes back, and he says, send me every shoe that you have, send me everything you can produce, nobody here wears shoes, and we have an unparalleled opportunity to sell shoes. Those two totally different responses to the same situation. Do we see this scattering? Do we see this diminishment as a threat or an opportunity? Man, what an incredible opportunity that we have right now in the midst of so much pain, so much grief, so much longing. I mean, how many of us are longing for meaning right now? How many of us are longing for a story that makes sense of what we're experiencing, a story that makes sense of our lives, a story that makes sense of what we're experiencing as a country right now? We long to find meaning, to find joy, to find purpose. And it's just so easy to fall into despair, to fall into confusion, right? There's so many voices that are beckoning us to pay attention, so many invitations to find joy in all the wrong places. And we're gonna go through another cycle of political stuff here. And it's like, are we gonna reach for that? Are we gonna reach for that to try to find joy and meaning and purpose? And how many times do we reach and we just time and time again find ourselves discouraged, despondent, deconstructing, disillusioned? We have to kind of step back and say, like, what else did we expect when we reach for those things? If we want to find joy, we've got to reach for Jesus. 
We've got to reach for the spiritual resources available to us in the heavens. That's what Stephen did in chapter seven. That's what we see the disciples doing here. And, and there's a warning in here for us also. I don't have time to do the whole story. It's an, it's an amazing narrative, but there's a warning for the church in here as well. That what starts as a genuine seeking of God's power can also be co-opted by a kind of grasping for power. That, that's the whole warning of Simon. We have a man that looks at what God is doing in the community. He sees all this joy, and he tries to counterfeit it. He, 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 grasps, for, he, grasps, he grasps for power, and he sees in what God is doing in the city an opportunity to grasp onto that power, to manipulate that power, and to use the power of God selfishly for his own purposes. I mean, this is a warning for us as a church. There will always be on the margins of revival people who look like they're Christians, people who look like they're genuine and authentic. They're in the church. They're baptized. But at the end of the day, this is really just about control and about power. And there, is a, there are two spiritualities laid out for us here, two paths, one of receiving the work of God and the power of God and the presence of God and one of grasping after the power of God and trying to use the power of God for our own purposes. And this is easy for us to see, like, yeah, in the political world, we've talked about nationalism, we've talked about some of those temptations, but how easily do we miss it in our own lives? How easily is it for us to come into the church and to seek to use God to manipulate spiritual power for our own benefit, to do this in our own families, to do this with our children, to use our missional communities, our discipleship groups, the church as a vehicle for trying to shape life in our image rather than surrendering to what God wants to do in bringing great joy into our city. And Peter looks straight at Simon and he warns him, your heart is not right with God. You are in the bonds of wickedness. You're not seeking God. What you're seeking is what God can do for you. And man, that is such a temptation for us and I believe is one of the great temptations facing the church right now. That's why we need the community of faith to be opening up those blind spots to show us how we, in our bitterness, in our woundedness, so he says, you're in the gall of bitterness. You're in the gall of woundedness. And there's something you're seeking here but you're seeking it in the wrong way and you're seeking it for the wrong purposes. And that's why we need the church to be able to call those things out and to show us when we're seeking something in the wrong ways. So I just wanna close our time together just with, with a prayer. You guys can put your stuff away. We go to communion and we just, um, man, there's just so much here, so much longing, so much desire. And I just wanna invite us to a time of prayer here as we go to communion to pray for this kind of movement of God among us, like my heart longs to experience this kind of renewal, this kind of revival, right? Like a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, uh, signs and wonders and healing, people being healed physically, spiritually, emotionally, the gospel going out, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's come into the world, all of our hopes, all of our longings found in Jesus, all the things we can't find in politics, we can't find in ideology, we can't find in our families of origin, we can't find in our children, we can't find in money, we can't find in status, we find those in Jesus. And for us to experience that kind of power falling on us, man, I, I just wanna spend a minute here just praying over us. And I wanna pray specifically for three things as we pray for this kind of renewal among us now in the midst of our scattering. One, I wanna pray for those of us who are feeling scattered, who feel emotionally, mentally, spiritually scattered, that you would be able to rediscover in this moment 
God's meaning and his purpose for you in the midst of your suffering. Not that God has caused this suffering and that is the meaning. Suffering itself is meaningless and tragic and terrible, right? There's nothing redemptive about that in and of itself. But what, what we find in the midst of that is God is with us and he's working through that. We can find meaning. And I wanna pray that you would find meaning in the midst of your scattering. I wanna pray for just some missional intentionality and intensity and fruitfulness, that we'd be sharing the gospel with our friends and coworkers and neighbors in this moment, right? Like, that didn't get suspended when the pandemic started. I don't care if it's on Zoom or not. Like, we have opportunities each day to testify to the goodness of Jesus, to, to be a healing presence in our communities, in our families, our neighborhoods, and our workplaces. I wanna pray that God would dial up the intensity, would give us a passion to represent him in word and deed, that we'd experience racial reconciliation in the midst of a very divided time. Like, I wanna pray that God will do that. And then I wanna pray for repentance for all of us in the different ways that we are grasping and seeking rather than receiving. We're looking for control and power in all the wrong places. I wanna pray that God would just open our eyes to those temptations and we'd see that as a church and that God would move in powerful ways. So let's just take a moment. Let's, let's pray. I wanna invite you to search your own heart. Whichever of these kind of resonates with you, you uh, respond to God as God leads and then we'll take communion together and we'll sing a song and send you back out. Lord, search us, search our hearts. Know our anxieties, test us, God, and help us to see the ways in which we are resisting the renewal that you want to bring into our lives. We feel scattered. I wanna pray over specifically those of us who feel scattered, those of us who feel discouraged, who feel despondent, who feel empty and lonely, those of us who feel angry and frustrated and disillusioned by things that are happening inside of us, things that are happening outside of us in the church. We look at so much of the chaos and it just feels futile, it feels hopeless. And God, we feel just an immense sense of scattering, no cohesion, no unity, no fullness, no abundance. God, I pray that you would restore as Joel says, the years of what the locusts have eaten. God, so much around us and inside of us, demonic powers and principalities at work just robbing us, stealing us of a joy. God, I pray that you would renew us, that you would renew our hearts, that you would renew our inner lives, renew our minds, renew our bodies. Help us to experience your power and your presence. God, would you gather us individually and collectively, even as we feel scattered in so many ways? Would you strengthen us? Would you just reach down into the core of our being. Give, it a, give us a vision of you, God. And I pray, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, that we'd be strengthened together in our inner man, in our inner person, to be able to discern with all the saints what is the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of your love for us in Christ Jesus, a love that passes, surpasses all knowledge and all understanding. God, I pray that you would do abundantly in us and through us more than we could ask or imagine. I pray, God, that we would discover a meaning and a purpose in our work, in our lives, in our families, that you would just help us to clarify what it is that you have for us, the tasks and responsibilities, the mission that you have for us as we open up our lives and we share the good news of Jesus, as we are intentional in serving our neighbors in word and deed, as we pursue racial reconciliation, being a multi-ethnic community. God, these are all different ways that we can find a sense of purpose. God, as we go, would you just 
give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you help us to reach for you, to reach for the spiritual resources that you've given us so that we can thrive in the midst of being diminished? And God, I pray just for repentance. Pray for repentance for all of us, God. We are all prone to grasp rather than to receive, to try to shape the world into our image, our vision, rather than just to receive your presence and your power. And God, we, we get ensnared and we get caught up in bondage. We are in bondage to principalities and powers, and we can't even see how in our grasping, we are missing out on receiving what you have for us. Our hands are closed, and they need to be opened. Our hearts are closed, and they need to be opened. So God, would you just help us to turn away from any sort of grasping and using religion, using the church, using the good news of Jesus in self-protecting, self-advancing ways. And God, would you just, would you cast that out of this room? Would you cast that out of our hearts? God, we just pray against that spirit of grasping, and we pray that you would give us an openness and a yieldedness and a surrender to what you wanna do. And God, I pray for a revival. I pray for renewal to flow into your church first and foremost, into your people, into our hearts our lives, our communities, our churches around the city of Indianapolis and around the country and around the world. And God, as we experience revival, as we experience joy, true, deep, authentic joy that comes from drinking deeply of your presence, would you bring renewal out of us and would renewal flow through us? And would you bring great joy into every corner, every nook, every cranny, every relationship, every system, every structure in our city? Would you just bring this kind of renewal and revival? God, we long to experience it. And we pray that you would do it. We know that it only happens through your power and your presence and your providence. So God, we cry out and we ask for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.